0: Hi everyone, welcome to this week's No Such Thing As A Fish. Uh, Andrew Hunter-Murray is off on his hollybobs this week, and so we have been joined by the absolutely brilliant, hilarious Kiwi actor and comedian Reese Darby. Uh, We were lucky enough to get him because he is currently in quarantine in a hotel somewhere in New Zealand and frankly didn't have a lot more to do with his time. Now, you might know Reese from Flight of the Concords, you might know him from Jumanji, and in podcast terms, you might know him from The Cryptid Factor, which is his podcast all about the mysteries of the world, uh, which he does with a certain Daniel Schreiber, as well as another guy called Buttons, who, I'll be honest, is Really, the genius behind the whole thing, but we've got recent Dan on this week anyway. Uh, I really hope you enjoy the show. We had a whole lot of fun making it. Do check out The Cryptid Factor, and for now, on with the podcast.
1: Hello? Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations, three in the UK and one in New Zealand. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Tuchinski and Rhys Darby. And once again, we have gathered round our microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order,
2: here we go. Starting with you, Rhys. Well... In 1943, a spy who topped the Gestapo's Most Wanted list was New Zealander Nancy Wake, who once judo-chopped a Nazi to death.
0: <laughs> I didn't even think that was possible. I don't know I why. Know. Is it possible? I suppose you can. if you can chop a brick in half, you can chop a Nazi in half, can't you, I suppose? I don't, I don't think she chopped him in half. Oh, right. I no. think... I think.
2: <laughs> Hey, well, let me just check my notes. Yes, in half. Wow. I mean, those are strong hands, guys. Um, so tell us more about her. Well, she was the, and still is, I believe, the most decorated uh, female of any war. So wow. she's a Kiwi. Uh, she became a spy. Now, she actually left home at the age of 16. I'm going to do the whole bio now. It'll take me 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> she she left home at 16 uh with 200 pounds in her pocket and went to london uh and self taught herself journalism and then uh she ended up in france uh and she was there during all the uh the nazi build up watching uh hitler's uh uh horrific actions in the early days and decided yeah, she inter- she, won-
1: she interviewed hitler didn't she or at least she was sent to interview him i i, I couldn't find out if oh she actually got the interview
2: ah, i couldn't find that maybe she didn't quite get through the crowds <laughs> yeah excuse me mr hitler mr hitler a word please uh, just 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 about these the whole jew thing what, what's going on
0: there mr. Hitz? <laughs> she's missed an opportunity if she has the karate skills you know to have got him early right it's weird because um, it would look like an erratic sig heil, wouldn't it? It looked like, come on, just keep it
1: firming up, and she's well, busy you could chopping start it off, away. and yeah. the full
2: extension of the heil, and then come whacking down. I yeah. mean, that could be what she did, but yeah. I don't think she did. In <laughs> fact, I think the whole judo thing might have just been a little bit of a kind of um, uh, fluff. It, it may okay. not have been knowing her. Uh, not that I do, but knowing um, the way she was trained, being ex-military myself, uh, a little bit of disclosure there. I, I too have been Ooh, taught to uh, kill a man in four seconds using my bare hands. It was years ago now. I was, you know, eighteen at the time, but it's more of a breaking of the neck from behind. I'm assuming that's what she did. Nice, uh, but hey, you know, judo sounds cooler. But yeah, oh, there we go.
3: A, it sounds a bit like judo. Can I do, have you actually been taught how to come up behind someone and kill them to death with a neck chop? Kill them to death. Uh, Kill them to death. <laughs> is that really a thing? I always thought it was a myth that people told each other in the playground when they were 12.
2: No, no, it's it's you, you learn unarmed combat. I was in the regular force cadets uh, in the New Zealand Army, so it was kind of an elite training school. And then once I was, I didn't actually do the the full-on hand-to-hand combat till I was a signaller uh, two years later, and I remember doing it in Hobsonville Air Force Base and we were doing unarmed training and it was about, yeah, there's a certain way you can kill someone in in under five seconds, basically. I don't want to divulge too much information
0: because it's a bit gross. But, yeah, (laughs) you know, I was trained. If anyone ever goes to one of Reese's gigs, do not heckle him. That's what we're saying.
2: (laughs) Well, oddly enough, they don't. I think word got out because once someone did heckle me and I went, excuse me, come here, come here. And they went, no, please, no, please, actually turn around. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and it was never seen again.
1: <laughs> she was pretty um, She was pretty badass, wasn't she, Nancy Wake, in terms of, you know, I feel like if it hasn't been published yet, a little book of quotes would be a really enjoyable read because she did do bad stuff to people. Like, you know, she yeah. judo-chopped someone to death and she said, uh, I was not a very nice person and it didn't put me off my breakfast. And I just love that little extra, like she was like, I had to do what I had to it's do. It's quite army, uh, isn't
0: it? It's quite like, you know, from an action movie, the kind of thing someone would say.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and there's a sort of famous story about the fact that when she went to help out, so she eventually helped out with the French resistance. And there's a story involving the fact that she was married to a Frenchman. She had to leave to London, but then she came back into France to help out. And mm. um, she parachuted back into the country. And when she parachuted in, she landed in a tree and that's where she was caught up and eventually her French contact found her um, hanging into this tree and um, you, you can guess her response then so the man who eventually finds her the Frenchman says I hope that all the trees in France bear such beautiful fruits this year oh, she said yeah. okay. and, and she she, said, she looked down at him I've got a lovely pear <laughs> <laughs> she, she went don't give me that French shit and Did that's she? just again
2: just wonderful, ah. badass. Well, this <laughs> is interesting. She was she was gorgeous, and she, this is part of her charm. So a, as a, a resistance fighter, uh, you know, she used to get through the guards by actually using flirtatious behaviour and yeah. saying, would you like to search me? And she used her womanly charms, but also she had more balls than any man. So <laughs> she's an inspiration, and coming from a country uh, – that she comes from that i come from new zealand with a, a strong uh feminist background we were the first to give women the vote 1893 we have a very strong female leader right now that uh, the world is in awe of and i just feel it's kind of a this is a a great person to talk about um yeah. because yeah she's 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 a, a a a force to be reckoned with and i wish she was alive today because she could uh, she could turn a few heads
3: I don't know. I mean, she'd just be chopping people to death. I think. I I think. (laughs) I quite like. I mean, I think one of the very few areas where women get off better than men is that in stories like this, you're badass if you're a woman, but if you're a man, you're really mean. I mean, she was. um, She was vicious, right? She the time that she said that she she wasn't. She sort of had to be, but apparently she didn't. She had a very bad temper, and she didn't survive very well in the post-war world because her Mm. predilections were more for sort of. going around upsetting people and killing people. But when she said she wasn't put off her breakfast, that was when she'd interrogated these French women and she decided that one of them was definitely a spy and so put her to death by firing squad and then was like, yeah, didn't put me off my breakfast. Yeah. So she she was badass, but I think, yeah, she struggled in peacetime too. I, I, I believe that,
2: you know, people are born for their time in some in some ways. And when the war finished, she felt lost. She felt yeah. like the action had yeah. stopped and she didn't know what to do after that because her purpose was doing what she did and she did it so well. And and I think there's a lot of people that fit into that same bracket.
3: Yeah. She did say, when you were saying that she was quite attractive... Um, I think she did. She she wore Chanel lipstick everywhere. I think she was never travelling without her Chanel lipstick, her face wow. cream, and apparently her favourite red satin cushion, which seems like quite wow. a cumbersome thing to carry around with you when you're supposed to be <laughs> she pro- a spy. She probably used but it to
0: asphyxiate people to death. I would say that satin cushion. That's yeah.
3: it. When the chop didn't work. Apparently she once fled a car that was under fire that was literally about to explode and then she ran back in order to collect a saucepan, a jar of face cream, a packet of tea and her red satin cushion wow. after which wow. the car immediately exploded. I mean, that's a weird behaviour. Um, but, but she
0: said that she never had any affairs, didn't she, during the war? Mm, uh, and the mm. reason being because she was so attractive. She said, if I had accommodated one man, the word, the word would have spread around and I would have had to accommodate the whole damn lot. So, <laughs> if she'd have started shagging, she would have Amazing. never got anything else done. That's what she. Now yeah, you roll reverse. You roll reverse that one, and it just doesn't <laughs> exactly. work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
3: um, it does seem surprising that there hasn't been a big sort of film made of her life. Maybe there has. Maybe this is there's a Kiwi film out there. Well, but... I think
2: there's one in the making right now. And of course, oh. they say the movie Charlotte Gray, which was a, a book as well, is partly yeah. uh, inspired by her.
3: That but makes I've, sense.
2: I've got another quote here because in the end of her, near the end of her days, she ended up back in, in London and living in the uh, the Stafford Hotel, uh, by the way. So you guys have been there. The American bar, which is which is in that hotel, is where she would, uh, even in her 80s, would uh, oh. get up in the morning and have a gin. Uh, she's <laughs> always a good drinker. Lived to 98, by the way, so that makes me feel good about my drinking. You know, it, it doesn't affect you at all. Um uh, now, here's a quote. So she said in the end, because she actually sold her medals, uh, these, all these medals she got, she sold them. She says, look, I'll probably go to hell anyway and that only melt. <laughs> 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 Isn't that great? <laughs>
1: That's so good. Yeah, she, this hotel that she lived in, um, she was given a complete, um, everything was paid for. And I, it's a concept I love, the idea of I think every hotel should have a resident badass or just someone with a history that yeah. you can find at the bar and just go and get their story and they live there completely free and so glad to know that that existed for her. I think that's really wonderful.
3: You're thinking of um, the major in Faulty Towers basically. She was the major <laughs> yes. at the Stafford Hotel.
2: Exactly. That's what I want. Similar there backgrounds. No there. I was actually thinking when I, when I found that fact out as well that uh, I was thinking to myself in my older days I'm going to end up in some cool hotel and i'm gonna be the guy there that gets free drinks i'm just gonna to have to achieve a few more things but that, that, that is a great way to end
0: your days isn't it? i don't I know thought- you can either do more impressive things or you can set your sights on a less impressive hotel so i think <laughs> yes. that maybe that's what the major did like the major kind of didn't do quite so well in the war so we had to go to Amazing. faulty towers maybe
3: yeah if you if you just go for a travel lodge, you could probably do yeah. that right now, Reese. Yeah. <laughs> I could do that right now.
2: You're Premier In level, Chris. You're, you're, you're kicking. <laughs> so. Whichever well, look, you want. The joke's on all of you, because I'm already in a hotel. Okay? <laughs> I'm in an isolation hotel at the Christchurch Airport, and I'm never leaving here. I get three meals a day, they knock on the door, they deliver it in a bag, I don't have to do shit. <laughs>
3: It's living squad. the dream. <laughs> living the dream. We should say that Reese isn't in prison or anything, he's just in quarantine. It's not sort of well, that's house very rest. nice of you. But there is a small courtyard where we
2: are allowed to do a little bit of a run around once a day, if you like. Mm-hmm. I went out there yesterday and there was a guy out there having a smoke going, hey, how are you going,
0: dubs? Yeah, you
2: come back from LA, Korea's not going
3: too well. Yeah, I understand you know the old COVID and all that. Yeah. Um So a part of what um, Nancy was doing was smuggling people out of France. This is what a lot of people's roles was uh, this time and to smuggle them to safety. And, do you know, so a lot of resistance fighters would smuggle children over the border to safety and they'd have to smuggle them out with their ID cards. And it became policy amongst the resistance to smuggle children's ID cards inside their sandwiches. Because apparently, oh, one resistance really? fighter realised that the Nazis never searched the sandwiches that had mayonnaise on them because it might dirty their uniforms.
0: That's yes. and that's actually
3: yeah. why
2: they called it um, "may I" back. In the, it was called "may I" as in to inspect the sandwich, <laughs> and then they changed it over time to "mayo." <laughs>
3: Oh, that's, that's an amazing fact,
0: Dan, Dan. You have had your place taken as the sender of it. dubious facts. Yeah, <laughs> that might oh, be. I knew it was a mistake, Brigadier. <laughs> Son,
3: um,
1: the the French Resistance um, is there's so many interesting stories of amazing characters. Some. Quite well-known names. One famous uh, person who became famous later in life, but was part of the French Resistance, was the great mime
0: act Marcel Marceau. Was and he? And yeah, and it's really a sweet. Story he must have been. He and he must have been a signal man as well, I reckon. Like Reese, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> He'd be able to get anything across. What's that, Marcel? It's windy. you're stuck in a box. Hang on, he's pulling on a rope here. He's pu- he needs a rope, does he? No, he's already
3: got one. What's <laughs> Rhys doing some extravagant mime here, which you won't be able to feel the benefit of at home. <laughs> is this audio
2: only, is it? I was told this was a visual. <laughs> we'll, we'll film I, you I'm more of a on. physical comedian.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can see why you're such a successful podcaster. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, he, uh, he had been studying, Marcel Marceau had been studying mime already at that point, and they snuck out a lot of children um, across the border and... Part of the problem is, you know, children kind of don't get it. It's really hard to get children to understand the concept of you have to be absolutely quiet and and so on and so Marcel used to do mime acts to them and using his mime and sort of entertaining them mm. sort of as it were trick them into going silent so that they were part of this act he rescued over 70 children and his brother over 350 children and I believe his brother was involved in doing the mayonnaise trick as well with the ID cards mm-hmm. they used to do things where they um, I think it was his brother Mayo? who dressed
2: up <laughs> <laughs> still running with it it's my eye.
1: Um, but they did stuff like they'd go near the border and they would throw a stick over and they'd get the kid to chase it and the kid would go pick it up, but then they'd be over the border and then they were fine and they had their ID card <laughs> in their mayonnaise sandwich so they could just get on with life. Um, they were dogs.
3: We say children, we mean dogs. Yeah, so they were sticking, smuggling so dogs out. Chase the uh, stick, mate. It was a ball. Come on, down, it was a ball. They weren't throwing sticks for children. Sticks,
1: balls, all sorts of things. <laughs>
3: But he was—I think it was Marceau's, maybe his cousin George Loangier. Maybe it was his cousin, his cousin and brother, but um, his cousin George sort of led a lot of these efforts. And he died in 2018, age 108. So maybe oh. the key to wow. longevity is gin in the morning and just saving loads of kids' lives. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, we're halfway there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that John Cleese's silly walk is exactly six point seven times sillier than a normal walk. <laughs> of course it is. Okay, right. so first of all, for anyone who's young listening to this, this is a, a sketch from Monty Python. Uh, and for anyone, oh, you should not have to say that. Come on, I Even know. Even if you're but... young, please. I know, but you've if got. If you're to. young
2: and you and you didn't know that, ask yourself a question. <laughs> Why don't you know (laughs) that?
0: Wow,
3: that's a real slam. See, that's the kind of comedy slam you'd get from watching
0: the comedy greats. So there was a couple of scientists called Nathaniel Dominey and Erin Butler, uh, who happened to be married, and they are both at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, uh, and they looked at how John Cleese's knees flex when he was walking, doing his silly walk. Uh, and they found that occasionally his knees bent around 110 degrees when he walked, when in a normal person they would bend around 20 degrees. And they kind of put in that and a whole load of other parameters, and they worked out that his walk is exact on the show is exactly 6.7 times more variable than a normal walk although wow. when he did the live performance in 1980 it was only 4.7 times more variable so they thought maybe Ooh. as he was getting older he was getting a bit less silly so amazing ah. but but it sounds
2: to me like you're using well they are at least uh, and you're reiterating <laughs> the the scientific mathematical elements um, how does that adjoin to use a, a knee term uh, with silliness per se?
0: i feel like i've done a ted talk on a subject i don't understand but i'll answer that question anyway um they had to work out what silly meant and they decided that silliness was just basically variability and they kind of put the two together and said the more variable that you are the more silly you are um, and in mm. the sketch, for the young people who, who don't know Monty Python, um, John Cleese kind of sees another guy called Mr. Putty, and he says that his walk is 3.3 times... And Sorry, and they've said that his walk is 3.3 times more variable, so it's not quite as silly, which is what mm. John Cleese actually says in the sketch as well. He's like, oh, it's not quite a silly walk, but this is actually... a." Point that the um, scientists were trying to make about funding, right? And they're saying mm. that often when you're a scientist, you have to go through this really difficult peer review process to get your funding normally. But what if you just had one person like John Cleese just assessing you when you walked in and seeing how silly you are or how good your science is? Maybe that would be a better way of doing it than just this massive, complicated peer review system. So they're trying to, they say, they're trying to make an important point when actually Uh just looking at the silly walk. right?
3: Wait, so they think you should just have one bloke read, read what you've written and say, yeah, it's good to go.
0: That's what they were suggesting, yeah.
1: Um, So did they find a, is there, did they look at any actual walks of people being silly in real life and go, do we have a measurement thing now where we can tell if people have
0: a 10 times sillier walk? Well, they, you could use their system for sure, but they didn't do that with other walks. But there was another paper a few years ago um, in the Proceedings of the Royal Society A, Mathematical and Physical Engineering Sciences, which did a 19 page study on silly walks, all the different silly walks they could think of. And they analysed them all and they worked out if there was any way of a silly walk, walk being better than a normal walk Uh, Mm. and they said that basically there is no there is no silly walk which is more efficient than a normal walk they all waste more calories um, so there's no point having a ministry of silly walks at all they say that they should cut off all funding and there's no point in making a ministry of silly runs either because they're not better but, Reese, uh, I don't think you agree. But that in its fact is silly
2: because, for a start, it's 19 pages long, which is just silly. <laughs> and and also the fact that uh, a walk is going to burn, particularly with the silly nature, more calories, that's wonderful because you want to get more fit. In other ways, you're going to hurt your joints. And let's move on to the fact that John uh, hated that sketch, wished he'd never done it. Really? Because yeah, he, everywhere he would go, because it was—it's phenomenal. It's an amazing piece of work, and people would say every time, "Do the silly walk, do the silly walk," you know. And of course, the older he got, he couldn't—he couldn't do it, and mm. he, for a start, didn't want to have to do that crazy walk, um, because it—it—it it, it, you know—it—it it, it starts to hurt your limbs. This is also coming from me, a physical comedian, uh, who sort of you know, obviously, very very much inspired by John. Over my tenure of uh, which happened to be ten years. Of uh, (laughs) Actually, it's more like 20, but uh, what's half a career between friends? Um, I ended up hurting my joints. And at the moment, I mean, uh, the last couple of years, I haven't been able to do the the physical comedy I once did. Um, But I never not liked it, but I don't like it now. And I see why he uh, started to regret it. Um, yeah, and
1: also he's, he's had hip transplants, his, his knees are shot to death, and people still ask him to do it. And so, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a...
3: If you look at that walk, it does seem that maybe that's the reason he's had to have a lot of, sort of, <laughs> of knees and joints yeah. replaced. I that's mean, true. that's going to crack your, crack your knees. If like, you know, it's, it's a hard
2: one to, yeah. to emulate. I don't know if anyone's tried to do it as well. I mean, a lot of it is the, the fact that he's so lanky. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, and he, he had such uh, great um, extensions and control over those w- ridiculous limbs.
3: Yeah. Mm. I like extensions as if he had some, some robotic <laughs> additions <laughs> to his own body. Yeah. <laughs> But he was inspired by a guy called Max Wall, who was a musical and kind of panto entertainer guy who was big in the 20s and the 30s. And he played a character called Professor Wolofsky, who did this really, really stupid walk. It's very similar if you watch it. Oh, wow. Mm. still very funny. And he played a pianist who also did this stupid walk. But um, he was a great character, Max Wall. So he married a woman called Marion, and he's called Max. And they had five children. They called the first Michael, and then they thought, "Oh wow, we've done the three M's thing." And so they went on to have four more children and called them Melvin, Martin, Meredith, and Maxine. So they mm, were.
2: Wow. All I M- have <laughs> the same thing in my family. Um, Mike and Maxine, and they started calling their kids all M's as well. I'd really? love to tell you their names, but they're cousins. Uh, that, this is so they, bizarre. Yeah, they they've. I, I should find out while you're um, while you guys are rambling on with your facts uh, about. <laughs> I'll find out what my cousins' names I are. I think and you should. Back
0: to you. I think the listeners are really on tenterhooks at the moment to know what your <laughs> cousins are called. It's I'm, annoying though because whatever we say now, all the fascinating Mike, stuff, no there? one's listening.
2: <laughs> Mike, are you there? What's what's your kids' names? I'm just on a um, an audio podcast. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's a bit it's a bit dull. It's all facts and figures, but they, I want to, yeah, they need to know. Your kids' names, right? So you got, oh, right, Matthew Mint. No, I'm just making these up now. You couldn't even think. No, I'm going to leave it. Craig. Yeah, I knew there was one with a C. All right, mate. Good luck on the farm. May I? May I? (laughs) That's the other one.
0: Oh, let's hope um, your
3: family doesn't listen to this podcast because they're never going to speak to you again if they do. There's a place
0: in New Zealand called John Cleese, isn't there? What? New uh, yes, there yeah. is.
2: It is the tip uh, in Palmerstead North
0: <laughs> because
2: he famously visited Palmerston North and he said this place is a dump.
0: Uh, so they named the city dump after him. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's so funny.
0: Has he been? Because he's done tours of New Zealand. Eric Idle has been. When John Cleese and Eric Idle did a tour, I think John Cleese stayed in the hotel and Eric Idle went for a walk up the um up the dump. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
3: Idled up the Cleese. <laughs> yeah. The BBC didn't love Monty Python, did they? Despite commissioning it.
1: Yeah. Well, it was commissioned by David Attenborough, wasn't it? Oh, was, was it?
3: he he was the really? original?
1: David Attenborough used to be the channel head for BBC Two. Who's, yeah. I think he was the original channel head. And I remember reading years ago, and I can't find it since. So this is, I I want this to be true, but I'm not sure that it is. He didn't, he wasn't on top of everything that was going out. Um, and Python was on quite late at night and it was very cult. And it started getting this following, which they didn't expect for something in that kind of late night slot. And the story that I read is that Attenborough saw what this show was. Someone showed it to him eventually. And he went, this is terrible. And he wanted to decommission it. But they said the numbers are so high, that would be a stupid thing to do. So he let it go on. Now that's as I say, I've I read that years and years ago, and I can't find where i where I read that. Maybe because has tried to bury that, if that's true. But um, yeah. but he is responsible for it existing. The one
2: tarnish on his career. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, and there's one tarnish on my career. And if I look back, I This is a great excuse for me to do the voice that everyone, literally everyone, can do. I've got three. I've got that. Sorry, this, this is back on me again, is it? Yeah, they
3: no, will go for it. Absolutely, yeah. it's
2: been at least thirty seconds. <laughs> I can do him, John Wayne, and uh, Frank Spencer. Those are the only three. And you know, I, I took those to Hollywood with me. And of course, the only one I thought I might have a bit of chance with was John Wayne. And they said, "No, we're not." I mean, it's not bad, but we're not going to need it. I mean, he's long gone now, and yeah, you know, if we do a biopic, I don't think it's going to be you, Dubs. <laughs>
0: Well, I think it should. I think it should be me. <laughs> Nobody will <laughs> pick a Frank Spencer in the offing in Hollywood, is there? <laughs> mm. uh, I wish it would be. Uh, I mean, why well, wouldn't it be? Uh,
2: I was in Condor Man. Did you know that? He was in a big Disney American film, Michael Crawford. Was he? Uh, who was still with us, thank God. Called Condor Man. Now, I've always wanted to remake that. So if there's any listeners out there, um, and I know there's not any visual people, but if there's any audio wallabies, um, I
3: think I think we've lost most of the listeners. Have dropped off at this point.
2: <laughs> remake Condor Man and put me in it. That's all I'm saying. If there's one thing I want to get out tonight, it's that. And yeah, just just try and get some. V- visuals happening with this show. (laughs) Those are the two main points.
3: (laughs) What were you talking
1: about? Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna.
3: My fact is that in 1814 there were days of rioting in Dublin because a dog who was supposed to be starring in a play failed to show up on stage. (laughs)
0: And <laughs> why did he not turn up on stage what was
3: well he was actually demanding better pay which the dogs had a very strong union in the early 19th century uh, the <laughs> act, dog on. actors union
2: how talented was this dog could it talk
3: <laughs> it couldn't it well it could talk in dog it could bark um, Yeah, dogs could understand it but well how, actually, how's your how's your treatment
2: rough rough
3: it's rough. <laughs> wow. But I, my dad literally told me that joke when I was five, and even then. <laughs> well, there you go. We're still rocking it. <laughs> I rolled my eyes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this was a play that was very famous at the time, actually. It was called The Forest of Bondi, and it was based on a play called The uh, Dog of Montargis, the Chien de Montargis which was written in France in 1814. And it was a phenomenon. It was so popular that it was immediately adapted into English and played around Britain and Ireland. And yeah, it was being put on, and there was a big hoo-ha about it being put on in Dublin. But the dog's owner thought that the dog was not being reimbursed adequately, given his extreme talent. And people turned up at the theatre and they thought they were going to see this play with a live dog in it, which they were very excited about. And a different play started because they hadn't been able to secure the dog. And they lost it. And there was (laughs) rioting. And so, like, chandeliers were broken. The The whole orchestra fled. So all the instruments were destroyed. Boxes were pulled down. Doors were flung off their hinges. And this just went on. So the following night, the audience returned, thinking, surely they'll give us the dog tonight. (laughs) Same thing. Tried to put on a different play. Same riot. And it went on for days. Hang on. The whole place was
1: destroyed, and they turned up the next night going, well, I'm sure it's reopened. (laughs) I'm
3: sure... (laughs) i did. i was a bit confusing to me too because they did seem to be smashing the place to shreds every night but then the next night would come back and it you would be just, miraculously they must repurposed. have had,
0: they must have had like um a joinery company who would come in every day and fix everything <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then they get a phone call the next morning going oh dave you won't believe what's happened again
3: yeah. yeah, are we
0: up again? Are we? We're in. Okay.
3: All right, guys. We're back in there. Fix those instruments. Get those walls plastered. Anyway, um, so the place kept being destroyed and then rebuilt in the night, apparently. And eventually, the deputy manager of the theatre came on stage to apologise, but was sort of booed off and had to flee because projectiles were being thrown at him. Whoa. And the theatre manager just resigned. That was it. He resigned a letter to the wow. paper saying he was emigrating. That was that. It's literally leaving the country. <laughs> <Literally> <laughs> leaving
1: the country. Wow! Wow! That's it's amazing. The um, yeah. the play itself is, um, as you say, it was it was extremely popular, and it was based on a legend that was written by Julius Caesar Scaliger. Um, the idea was that it was based on a real court case. So there was a French courtier um, to King Charles V who was murdered, and so. They found the murderer, and the only witness to the murder was the dog of, of this courtier, and the dog recognised this murderer. And so there was this weird thing whereby they made the dog and this murderer go into arm-to-arm combat they sort of like put them together to have a fight and the guy was given like a little club or something to fight against the dog and they had this big battle and the dog won and then the guy, once he was defeated, confessed to the murder and then he was himself executed and that's the sort of the basis of the story and it took place in this town that you mentioned, Anna, which was uh, Montagy, Montage. Montagy, yeah. Montagy. And there's actually a statue there of the event of the dog and the man fighting, mm. uh, which you can go and visit if you go to this place.
3: I like the way you say it's based on a myth uh, by Julius Caesar, as in uh, <laughs> hoping that people will just think Julius Caesar wrote the myth when actually it's a <laughs> completely unknown author from the 1500s called <laughs> yeah Julius Caesar Sc- Scaliger, wasn't it? Or?
1: Scaliger, yeah. Scaliger,
0: Scaliger. Yeah. Scaliger
3: yeah. Not Excalibur, yeah. not Julius Caesar Excalibur. <laughs> it was...
2: <laughs> That's not a name to live up to, isn't it? So It's a big one, yeah. What's your yep. name, mate? Julius Caesar Excalibur. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I'll get you just to do the mopping up at this stage and we'll um, <laughs> make sure you get Darby a drink at some point,
3: won't you? Lord uh... Excalibur. Uh, yeah, the... so this this is a big deal, this play.
0: Yeah, it was yeah. a big deal. When it was played um, at the court of Grand Duke Charles Augustus in the Weimar court, um, Goethe was like, you can't put a dog on a stage. Like, the stage is for humans, for actors. You can't put a dog on there. Mm. And they went, no, we're going to do it anyway. And he's like, well, if you do it, then I'm going to resign. And by the way, I'm Goethe, so really, you've got to hear what I say. And they said, no, we're going to put it on. And so he resigned, and he was dismissed from the um, Grand Dukes Theatre just because he didn't want to have this dog on the stage. It's amazing. Wow.
3: But Goethe just had a thing against dogs.
0: He did. He hates dogs. Because I was dogs. like,
3: why is he making such a fuss about this play? Just let it go, Goethe. But sounds like, I mean, so there's Faust, where actually oh, mephistopheles yeah. appears as a poodle at one point. Um, so that's bad, you know, he's like a demon. But then in Goethe's semi-autobiographical novel, there's a play that's disrupted by irresponsible dog owners. In another play, <laughs> there's a couple of women who bitch about how they dislike dogs so much. He he had a thing against dogs. Um, Is this
1: is this done after this him
0: being fired? Has he is
1: this revenge dog anger?
0: He and the Duke basically, the Duke loved dogs and Goethe hated dogs. And their whole relationship was them just arguing about whether dogs are awesome or really (laughs) shit. It was like that's all they ever talked about. Wow. Because
3: they were very close. It was like the only it was like a marriage where there's just one thing that wedged (laughs) that's driven between you at all times, wasn't it? And that
2: was the dogs. Dogs can be hard to work with, and I come from experience. I have worked with a dog. I've worked <laughs> with a few animals over the years, uh, but on a show called Wrecked where I I played an elderly man, um, I said to them, look, I'm not going to play an older guy. Can I play a young, handsome guy? And they, they said, all right, but we're going to give you a dog. So it was a payoff. Anyway, I'm not a dog person. I've said this many times over the years. Uh, but they, like you guys, didn't listen. And so I got a massive dog. They gave me a Great Dane. Like it's the heaviest dog you can imagine. And this is in Fiji, we're shooting it. And they said, oh, yeah, these are all trained dogs. They're not. They're just not wild dogs, okay? So they don't have acting dogs in Fiji. So when they say trained, they mean, you know, they know where their bowl is and it's got their name on the bowl. That's about it. So I've got this ginormous dog sitting on me and I'm supposed to, he's meant to be my support dog. Well, anyway, we're on a plane, uh, not a real one, it's an acting plane, and this dog <laughs> is on my lap and it's, it's 200 pounds and I am is squashing my cahoonies. And it, it was wanting to go away all the time and the only reason it would be staying on me is that I had to keep feeding it tiny sausages. <laughs> <laughs> well. Anyway, push comes to shove, which I did do, by the way, and episode two I said to the team, look, either the dog goes or I go. And the guy gave me a ticket for the plane (laughs) and I called my lawyers uh, who were also my agents and the dog was out on its beautiful hind ass.
3: Really? Is that a dog feature? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, gone. Of course. What would you rather have, me or a massive dog? Don't make people answer that. Yeah, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, the dog was busy today. (laughs)
3: Wow. We also
2: worked
0: with ducks, but that's another story.
3: Oh, yeah. Are they better to work with? They don't well, crush your balls so badly, I guess. They didn't cr- crush my balls. Uh,
2: <coughs> so we got along quite nicely, actually. Pierre, and if you watch the movie, it's called Love Birds. I actually fall in love with the duck. It, it crash lands on my roof. And. Um, yeah, I, we, we sort of we hang out. There's also a, a, a female I'm in love with, but the duck does come between us, and uh, eventually, I don't want to spoil it, but I've got to let the duck go. Oh, oh. Wow. I've got
0: to let the duck go. <laughs> oh, that's that's really sad. You know, you were saying about how they didn't like they didn't bring in a professional dog for your yeah. to sit on your lap and eat your tiny sausage. Like that is one of the main problems that they have uh, in Hollywood. So there's a guy called Bill Berloni who runs a company called Theatrical Animals and they have dogs uh, and other animals which are specifically trained to be in movies, as in they know how to work on movies, how to work with the lights and the cameras and stuff. And they say that 80% of the calls they get is where people have decided to put on a show and just use someone's pet or used like a trained yeah. animal rather than a properly trained animal, yeah. and they've decided yeah. after about two days this is not going to work at all. But as a huge union, you have to use the the acting
2: dogs, mm. the acting animals. You know, really? there's, there's mm. a massive industry, and if you don't use them, then there will be hell to play.
3: Um, I actually did just on-stage dogs. Mm. So dog and back to the 19th century, dog drama... Yep was a really popular thing, especially between sort of the 1820s and 1860s in the UK. Then they, they were usually short, quite bad plays, but people loved them because they just went to see the dogs perform. And they were well-trained dogs. We're not talking any Fijian bullshit here. They were, so they were trained to do one particular move, which was called Taking the Seas, and this meant, basically, as an actor, you had to have a string of sausages concealed around your neck in a scarf. And at one point in the play, wow. the dog would always—the dog would always be trained to leap up to your neck and maul away at the sausages to try and get to them. Wow. And then you're taken down to the ground, and it looks like the dog is tearing away at your oh, neck. Oh
2: yeah, right.
3: Very famous move. It was—it was used in a very popular play at the time, *Dog Hamlet*.
2: <laughs> Which okay, Hamlet amazing
3: <laughs> the superior version of Hamlet which apparently, according to the owner of the most famous Dog Hamlet actor, who was called Devil's Hoof, that was the name of the dog, uh, his owner said Dog Hamlet was conceived by mistake when Hamlet was being played on stage and this dog was in the wings. And when he saw the wrestling between Claudius and Hamlet at the end, the dog galloped onto stage and sort of got involved in the fighting and the audience loved it. And they went, well, we've got to make this a thing. And so Dog Hamlet became a thing. And the plot of Dog Hamlet was basically... The same as the plot of Hamlet, except there was also always a dog on stage accompanying (laughs) Hamlet the whole time. And in the final final scene, he got to pin Claudius down while Hamlet killed him. It sounds great. I don't know why it doesn't get get played at the National more often.
0: One of the reasons that these dog dramas were so popular is because of the Licensing Act of 1737, which basically meant that whenever you wrote a play you had to give it to the Lord Chamberlain and they ha- and he had to check through it and make sure that there was nothing bad in there. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a real arse of a hoop to get through. But luckily, a dog drama didn't really have any lines apart from bark, bark, bark or something. <laughs> you know, they were melodramas. There was hardly any lines in there at all. And so they were really easy for people to write and get past the Lord Chamberlain.
1: Nice.
0: clever right. not it? Yeah. Yes.
1: There's just one last thing is, uh, I've, I found a quite nice thing, which is, That animals used to, in Hollywood, be acknowledged for their contribution to film and TV. And there used to be an award ceremony that took place called the Patsy. And the Patsy stood for Picture Animal Top Star of the Year. And it ran for a number of years. And the the very first one was hosted by Ronald Reagan in 1951. And it's great. It's just nice to look through the list to sort of acknowledge all these incredible animals. So in the first year, animals that were acknowledged were Francis, the talking mule, Black Diamond, the horse, Lassie, the dog. Lassie gets its first mention there. Wow. Um, But yeah, the Patsy, and they stopped doing it. And that's a shame because there are a lot of animals in movies that are still
2: given their all. Mm. That's interesting to me that they stopped that because... They're held in such regard, especially in the States, uh, you know, the, these acting animals. So are I they? wonder why. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder why they stopped the award ceremony, maybe because the animals don't realise they're getting awards? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Probably. Yeah.
0: Um,
3: I mean, yeah. the animals don't even realise they're acting. Can, why yeah. Are they held well, in higher regard? Well, that's the big
2: question. Yeah, it is the big question. <laughs> Do some of them. Do they? Because you look at the such, the uh, like Lassie, for example, uh, mm. or the the other famous one, I can't recall the name, but the dog that was in uh, Frasier. Do you remember that little? Andy? Oh, Jack? yeah. He definitely knew what he was doing. And mm. the owners and the trainers will tell you. They'll come off and they'll uh, they'll look at you and they'll be sort of like, how did I do, how would I do? And they'll want to do another um, take another as take. well.
3: take. <laughs> Absolutely,
2: because they... <laughs> They know they've got to run on. I've got to do a certain thing, and they have to do it in a certain way. And then they'll come back and they'll get a treat or whatever. But they know um, they know with, that there's cameras there, and especially if they're doing it for years. So you know, even though I took the Mickey out of the 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 dog, as I've been working, I have had experience with it. Um, I do
0: uh, acknowledge the work that goes into it. Do you um, ever see those guys like the duck? Do you ever see the duck in like social settings anymore? Or?
2: No, sadly, I have not visited the duck. Um,
3: is, the, is that because the
2: duck's too busy or you're too busy?
3: Is, did one of your careers really take off?
2: <laughs> Look, it's an, it's an actor's thing. We When we mm. leave the film, we leave each other. It's Got what it. you do. It doesn't matter whether you're human or animal. <laughs> um, and you might see each other at the awards, uh, you know, not so much now if there's no animal awards. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the agency Christmas do you might, yeah. you
1: might? Do you get Do you get occasional calls from it going, Reese? I see you've been cast in Jumanji. Lots of lots of animal
2: roles in that. Can you yeah, look, slip a word in, Pierre. I'd love to work with you, but as you know, these days a lot of them are computer generated. Okay, so you real life animals are sort of you know you're a you're a bit of maintenance, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Wow! (laughs) how rude.
1: (laughs) Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that while filming Return of the Jedi in the forests of California, the actor who played Chewbacca had to be accompanied by crew members in brightly coloured vests so that he wasn't shot by Bigfoot hunters. (laughs) <laughs> wow so amazing yeah and this is um for a long time this was a sort of a, a legend of the behind the scenes filming that no one had properly verified but Peter Mayhew who sadly passed away last year uh who played Chewbacca in all of the movies right up until sorry, the sorry that's, last- that's
3: Mayhew not May I isn't it <laughs> That's what <it's>
0: May- May-Hugh. <laughs> May-Hugh.
3: <laughs> so yeah so he played
1: chewbacca in all the movies including the force awakens he sadly passed away and actually um he was unable to do the one after the force awakens what was that one called the last jedi um,
2: I, th- I think yeah. it's called no one cares anymore wasn't it
1: uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah that might be it uh he um but he's still consulted he's in the credits as chewbacca consultant and um He was on a Reddit AMA where he was asked the question and he confirmed that this was the case. They were in these forests of California, which is a big Bigfoot hunting territory. It is where all the most famous encounters of Bigfoot happened in the Californian forest. Bluffs Creek is where the most famous footage that we know of, the Patterson, Gimlin. If you picture Bigfoot in your head, that's the footage you're thinking of. That happened in a Californian forest. So you can see that there would be slight concern of a giant... Chewbacca-like character walking around that he might
0: be hunted down. So, yeah, it's uh, it's what happened. Also probably grizzly bears. Do they have them there? Like they might shoot him because they think he's a grizzly bear rather than something that doesn't exist.
2: Uh, yep, okay, enough. so two points there. Uh, no. Okay, there's no grizzlies in that territory. And they not? do exist. Uh, uh, they- clearly. <laughs> okay. In fact, I've got many facts here. How long have you got <laughs> to to prove to you guys that they – there's an estimated number between 2 and 6000 of these creatures okay, that's one bit of evidence uh, in, yep mm-hmm. in North America okay they have extreme elusiveness they have fear of humans they nocturnally feed and they have nomadism okay that is basically they in their groups they migrate they move on the move all the time more than mm. 10000 people in the US have described encounters with Bigfoot over the last 50 years and a third of all Bigfoot sightings are recorded in the state of Oregon.
0: Reese, I do see that you're reading this, but um what where did you get these facts from? I was just wondering. These are out of
2: my 07 notepad <laughs> that Leon Kirkbeck got me for my birthday. Okay.
3: <laughs> so your sources yourself. What
2: well, is that? that. <laughs> I've written they're handwritten by me. These are facts written by me. Last year, 2019, scientists unearthed New evidence of the original Bigfoot. Uh, what do you think that is? Oh,
0: the giant hominid thing. Is it like giant yeah, Ten or foot
2: tall ape, um, Gigantopithecus,
0: mm. which they believe mm. is
2: related to the modern day orangutan.
1: Um, it's interesting That's you know, obviously, um, there are more people who disbelieve in Bigfoot than there are people who believe in it. But the people who do believe that he, she might exist are quite, it's quite interesting. People like David Attenborough has always said he thinks that the Yeti, for example, could be a real thing. He's, he's yeah, said it in but multiple he's, interviews. His,
0: if you look at his career with all that Monty Python stuff, he, can he really
1: be
2: believed, that guy? <laughs> he was tarnished a long time ago, you're
1: right.
0: Yeah. The
2: only second tarnish that he has that he's been trying to dust under the couch for a long time is his Bigfoot belief. <laughs> and here, I can't believe I'm saying it, but
0: Bigfoot is real. Um, on Chewbacca... Okay, yeah. there is a Star Wars comic from 2004, an official Star Wars comic uh, called Into the Great Unknown that says that the Millennium Falcon crashed, landed into the Earth in the in the Pacific Northwest before the area was colonized by people and that Chewbacca survives. He kind of is immortal or something and he became mm. the mythical Bigfoot. So maybe Chewbacca is Bigfoot. Mm. I love
2: this theory. Um, it's also a comic, I believe, mm. but... Uh, (laughs) because it makes total sense. And, you know, now he would have to have mated, Mm. uh, but then a population can grow. And also it counts for the uh, spaceship situation, ancient astronauts, for example. So therefore um, extraterrestrials have landed here, which, you know, we all know is true as well. So it does tie in with the Bigfoot and UFO um, factor. Which mm. which I find fascinating.
3: And that's the, why Star um, Wars is such a popular documentary.
2: <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> well, everything's based on fact. And that is
2: that is a Derby quote. <laughs> <laughs> it's Everything. in the book. It's in Everything. the Double O seven book. <laughs> <laughs> it's in here. I
3: wrote it. It's on page four. Everything. <laughs> Have you guys, uh Reese and Dan, ever been to Willow Creek? Or are you familiar with Willow Creek, which I think is sort of the home of Bigfoot, isn't it, in California?
2: It's one of them. Uh, familiar ah. with it, yes. Have not been, no. Because it's kind ah. of
3: amazing how well they do. Like the, the Willow Creek Museum apparently rakes in $500 a day, which for a microscopic museum in a microscopic place in the middle of nowhere is a lot of money. A lot of people seem to go to this place. Uh, the entry fee is $500. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> It's amazing, and it's you every day, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> There's
0: another museum. There's a Sasquatch Museum in Georgia, in Cherry Log, Georgia, and they. It's called Expedition Bigfoot, and one of their main things they have is a buttocks imprint of the Sasquatch. Oh, really? Um, yep. So apparently, the it's Sasquatch – I know about that. Oh, do you? Okay.
2: Well, I don't. I mean, it's a it's a plaster cast, mm. isn't it? Uh Yeah. So it it they left an apple out, and the Sasquatch came in the middle of the night, and it uh because they're nocturnal and it went to grab the apple but it didn't go right up to it because it so it sort of actually leant down and on its on its buttocks on yeah. the on the on the unfortunately I think it was muddy ground and reached over and got it and took off and left an imprint. Yeah. And they've mm. got that whole cast. And they did the cast,
0: yeah. It's a famous one. And according to Jeff Muldrum, professor of anthropology at the University of Idaho, it has obviously prominent buttocks that are well muscled and the hair streams downwards and inwards towards the natal cleft. If anyone wants to know what a Bigfoot butt looks like. Mm. Yeah, and I've got a, a tattoo of a um, natal cleft
3: <laughs> <laughs> on
2: my right
3: shoulder blade. <laughs> so delighted this isn't a visual medium, is what every and under, listener under,
2: is thinking right under, Underneath now. that, it says everything's based on fact.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this... This um, podcast is obviously broken now. Apologies <laughs>
0: everyone. Um,
1: <laughs> but um, the very famous footage that I was mentioning before that we all know, the Patterson-Gimlin footage, um, yeah. those, guys, those guys are very interesting. So Bob Gimlin is the surviving one of the two. Um, he's in his 80s. And I've he, met him. You? And you've met him, Reese, which is so interesting yeah. because he wasn't a Bigfoot hunter. He was, uh, he was basically a um, daredevil to an extent. He used to ride... Stuntman. um, Yeah, he was a stuntman, and he used to ride carts through the canyons. He was courted by Evil Knievel to be part of his Daredevilin team, and that was going to be his whole career. And then he was filming this thing with Patterson, where they were actually filming a movie about someone else's account about these ape men in California, when they suddenly found Bigfoot and took this footage. And for 35-odd years afterwards, Gimlin's life was effectively ruined because no one believed them, what they were saying. His wife used to get teased at her workplace and constantly people would be revving up to their house saying, let's go Bigfoot, you know, drunk people. Mm. And then I think it was in the early 2000s, he decided to show up to a conference where suddenly he was met as if he were a god. And it was only then that his life turned around. And it's interesting that just in those 35 years, he didn't break him down the sort of the, what it did to his life, that he sort of admitted it to it being a hoax. He's always stuck by his guns.
3: Yeah. Oh, that's nice. He found his people.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because when, when they got the uh, footage um patterson was a bit of a showman and took it around everywhere but gimlin didn't really want to have anything to do with that he just wanted to look after his horses and stuff and so patterson hired someone to pretend he was bob gimlin no really and they they massively (laughs) fell out i mean this is what i read i don't reese might know this but like yeah they massively fell out and it was only towards the end of patterson's life that they kind of made up um in fact When Patterson went around with this cousin, I think, who's called Dyatli, they were making so much money that they did the classic thing of at the end of each night, they would go back to the hotel room and have money fights where they threw money at each other because they were making so much from this. Yeah.
1: The flip side to that is, while Patterson is having these money parties throwing them around the room, um, Gimlin sold the rights to the footage to a fellow Bigfoot researcher for ten American dollars. Wow, that's yeah, that's crazy. all he made from story.
3: it. You've got to get yeah. that in tiny denominations to make a good money fight out of that.
0: <laughs> I was um, reading about um, what scientists thought of this film Uh, there's a guy called John Napier who's like a big Bigfoot uh, scientist and I think kind of uh, kind of fair on both sides as far as I was reading it anyway and he thought that he was quite struck by the way that the Bigfoot walks in a really exaggerated way and he says why ruin a good hoax by ordering an actor to walk in such an artificial way uh, Sorry
3: how how many times more silly is the bigfoot walk than
0: an ordinary awesome <laughs> walk <laughs> Yeah there's an there was yeah. an anthropologist called Daniel Schmidt who said on this he said either this is a person trying to walk funny or bigfoot walks in a manner that is more or less identical to a person walking funny <laughs> so. mm. and let's not forget it has breasts let's not let's forget not that It's Yeah
2: female. because yeah. why would you put a put breasts on a on a fake bigfoot suit you know it would give you that extra moment of difficulty to to get that accurate in terms of its movement and you know go to those troubles there's there's you know I'm not here to to scientifically prove and argue this case but you know there's if you do want to dive into it listeners uh please cross over live now to to <laughs> my <laughs> podcast the cryptid factor which You'll absolutely wow. enjoy. It's also, it's visual. It's not just audio, although we are not we haven't got the visuals up yet.
3: But uh, it's like this. It's less facts. Um, I can't believe our podcast has been one long advert for the cryptid factor. <laughs> we're not putting this out. We need <laughs> listeners. Can I ask, and I can't, I can't even believe I'm going down this road. What am I doing? Uh, I hate myself. But um, if there, presumably there are male big feet as well. Uh, Because if it's just female, how are they breeding? Or do the males also have breasts? Uh, How is that working?
2: Yeah, it's this male and this female and this youth and people have seen all three.
1: Okay, so uh, it's not just
3: females. that people. No, it just so happens in this
1: footage. Uh, Bigfoot in this footage is actually called Patty, just a little nugget there. Um, Mm -hmm. Patty
2: the Bigfoot is the name that's given to her. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bigfoot Research Organisation go out and they do expeditions every year maybe four times a year and you can sign up if you go on the BFRO website, you can be part of an expedition to try and find these things. And quite often, almost every time they will at least hear the howls in the forest. And, you know, it's 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 well worth your time
3: Well, I mean, that's a matter of opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Look,
2: you can either do that or go and watch Dogs on stage.
3: It's up to you. (laughs) Can I just... I know it seems totally unrelated, but can I say something about the Yeti, which I found really amazing? It's very
0: related, yeah.
3: Well, you know, I don't know if the Bigfoot fans hate Yetis or whatever, but so the Yeti is obviously the sort of Nepalese equivalent of Bigfoot. So it's Mm. Yeti and Abominable Snowman are Himalayas, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, they're North America, and... A Yeti finger was once smuggled out of Nepal by my personal favourite actor, Jimmy Stewart. How, That's right. It's, oh. it's an How insane did, story. Where did
0: he smuggle it? What, where did he put it? Where did he put this finger? <laughs> he's, no, no. He's what did like, you like Did to he know? cover it in mayonnaise first is what I'm asking.
3: <laughs> May <got> I? <laughs> Absolutely not.
2: Um, so... Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Now, see that would have worked so much better if you guys had video. Because can I the just say, I like, put a finger Rhys, right up.
0: We Bro. we used to have our own TV show, and every time you say this would work well in video, it's a dagger to our hearts oh i'm so sorry
3: (laughs) and also if there are any bbz commissioners listening they're going thank god we definitely did the right thing yeah Yeah.
2: you'll hear next week okay you've you guys you've got the visual show but you're gonna have to have Rhys starby that's that's gonna be about bigfoot no we got decommissioned
1: by attenborough Uh... interestingly yeah he came back just for one-off decommission again
3: (laughs) i can't believe that guy I know, so many cock-ups in that career. Um,
0: Anna, can I uh, ask, what happened with, yeah. um, did you say Jimmy Stewart? What happened with, yeah. his, um, with his Yeti finger? Where is it now? And the finger.
3: Well, thank you for asking, James. So this basically started when there was a Yeti hand, apparently, that was in a Nepalese monastery in the 1950s. And basically there was a guy who had a great name of this huge oil magnate called Tom Slick. Very cool name for someone who's made wealthy (laughs) from oil. And he organised this expedition of scientists to go and basically get the Yeti hand. And so this guy was sent out to get it. He was called Peter Byrne. He was an explorer. And a British scientist had given him a human finger to swap with the Yeti finger, with one of the Yeti fingers on (gasps) this hand. So he got into this monastery it's a bit up in the air whether he got permission from the monks or whether he just stole it, but essentially he hacked off the yeti finger, replaced it, it with stolen. this human finger. Wow. Yeah, Stop, yeah. stole. We're falling on the side of stolen. Um, but then it happened that he was mates with James Stewart and James Stewart's wife, Gloria, who happened to be in the area. And so he said, I'm so sorry, guys. Which you? I heard you're going to the UK. Would you mind taking this yeti finger back with you? <laughs> And they did, and they they smuggled it out in Gloria, Jimmy Stewart's wife's uh, lingerie case, which I actually didn't even know that was a thing. But apparently no one searches lingerie cases. In fact, they asked at customs at the other end in Britain, you know, did did you open the lingerie case? And the customs official said, no, of course not. We'd never open a lady's lingerie case. (laughs) So... I should say that they have done analysis on this finger, which was kept in the Hunter Museum. They've done some analysis recently, and it is, in fact, just a human finger, turns out.: cool. He swapped it
2: back. He swapped it back.:
3: That's swapped always back. There's always back. a response,
0: isn't it? That's the good thing about this kind of thing.:
2: Because Yes, because now Jimmy Stewart or Tom Slick has the actual Yeti hand. And of course, if you've got that, that finger, you're not going to divulge that information. No. That's up in your, in your glass cabinet. Up on the third floor near the landing by your Bigfoot books.
3: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's in the notebook, guys. It's in the notebook. I love how respectful James
1: and Anna are being to you, Reese. If I said this, I'd get fucking murdered. Oh, Oh, yeah, but Dan, don't forget who
0: edits this thing.
2: (laughs) I'd like to get a copy of all the things that I
0: said that don't end up in the show. I'll throw them on my show. <laughs>
3: okay, that's just, that's going to be all the things yeah, you said. I'm so sorry. we can just send you the full show. There's
0: a limit, there's a limit on the size of file I can send. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James, at uh, James Harkin, Reese. Uh, please
2: don't contact me, it gives me anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> at I
3: That should have been your line. <laughs> Wish I thought of that <laughs> phrase five years ago. Uh, you can email podcast at <laughs> That's right, or you can go to
1: our Twitter account at No Such Thing or our website, nosuchthingasafish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. You can check them out. We also have little bits of merchandise that you can find the links to. Uh, do check out Reese's fantastic podcast, The Cryptid Factor. Uh, it's, Thank it's you. Re-
0: do you do that on your own, Reece, or is there- Uh
2: Predominantly on my own. Now and again, <laughs> I have a couple of guests. Uh, but, yeah, it's all fun facts and... Uh, <laughs> foibles from my from my notebooks.
3: Yep. I've heard the guests tend to bring it down. You're thinking you're them out, aren't you? <laughs> Alright everyone, we'll see you hey, again I'll, next week with an Oh yeah. Can I
2: just i would also just say it's it's been an honor being on this show. I'm a big fan of the podcast and I'd like to do a special shout out to my son Finn, who's also an avid fan. Um, hi Finn, oh,
3: hey, Finn. Oh, look, I did it. Hi hey, Finn in. Finn, we should have got you on, for God's sake. It, oh yeah,
0: he's more sensible. <laughs> it's very it's very apt that you would end the show with just Finn, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Yes.
2: And also right. I've got to say Theo, my my younger son, otherwise he'll be like, why didn't you mention me? <laughs> and my wife, Rosie, and Michael and Maxine, um, Moosh, Minky, <laughs> Mud, and of course my favourite. May I? <laughs> alright see you again next week guys bye
0: bye I just
3: want to look you in the eye really quickly and check because it's very hard to tell with you do you believe that Bigfoot (laughs) is the real thing
2: are you talking to me
3: I am yeah yes
2: yes absolutely isn't it fun isn't it fun to think that yeah and I'm all about fun. fun Yeah.